Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the time to teach and the time to study, the time to learn, Father, and the time to share it with others, I pray. Let the Word of God speak to us, Father. Don't hear the words, Father. Don't let the words be heard as from me. Let the words be heard as from you, which means in some cases, Father, changing the words. Even as I speak what I think is right, I want you to speak what you know is right, Father, in the hearts of these people. And let those words come through you, through the Spirit, and let me be useful, Father, to deliver them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude wants to stir up his readers. The fight was on. The men have arrived. The false teachers are in the church. Men teaching heresy, men promoting licentiousness. But the church had not heeded the earlier warnings. They were told to watch out for the coming wolves, and they didn't. And now these men are prowling within the congregation, wearing sheep's attire, and they are even harder to spot as a result. So consequently, Jude now feels compelled to write to these sleeping believers in the church and awaken them to the threat that's around them, calling them to arms. That's where we left off. Last week we studied verses 4 through 7. As Jude presented the third and the fourth triads, and let's just review them quickly by triad. In the third triad, Jude described the enemy. He said they were men called out for condemnation in earlier days. They were men who were unbelievers, who twist grace into an excuse to sin. And they are men who deny Jesus as Lord. Then the fourth triad. Jude gave three examples from Israel's history to remind the church how God responds to such men. The rebels in Israel, for example, were destroyed over their lusts despite having joined themselves to the chosen people, at least for a time. Then you find in the second example angels who witnessed God's majesty, and yet still they rebelled against heaven to pursue forbidden things in Noah's day. And they experienced judgment in the end. And then in the third example, you saw the sexual perversions of Sodom and Gomorrah warranting fire down from the sky. That reminds us of the coming judgment That sin requires as well. So history's lesson taught us and taught the church back in Jude's day that God knows these men. He knows their hearts and he will judge them. And the Lord will do the same. We know for all false teachers, any who come to destroy the work of God among his people. But Jude's history lesson is also a reminder to the church in a new way, in another way. It's an incentive for the church to steer clear of these men and of their destiny of their influence and of the destiny that they all share once a false teacher has been identified in our midst it's our responsibility to remove them from the church or at the very least we are obliged to shield ourselves from their negative influence that's the call of scripture paul tells timothy in first timothy 6 11 that we are to flee from practices or influence of ungodly men seeking earthly gain rather than seeking righteousness the bible's command to the church is to flee false teachers. And Jude's command is that we would contend earnestly against them. It's fight or flight when it comes to false teachers. Jude's asking the church to fight these men. Paul tells Timothy to flee immorality and such men. There is nothing more disheartening, and I'm speaking as a Bible teacher particularly, there's nothing more disheartening than to expose a false teacher to his audience, only to find that audience shrugging off the news and returning for more of the same. And perhaps there's reasons we might explain for why that can happen. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's an unwillingness to admit you've been seduced by someone who has the wrong doctrine, and so you'd rather conceal that mistake and hold to your pride and stay under the false teaching. Perhaps it's just inertia. You've been with that person for a while and it takes some amount of energy to get up the effort to go change your circumstances and find another church or find another teacher and 
you know this guy ain't great, but at least you can get something from him once in a while. Perhaps that's it. Usually it's ignorance. It's ignorance for why the problem is so serious. For what you're really in danger of experiencing. People generally underestimate the impact on their walk of sitting under bad teaching. It's worse than sitting under no teaching. I've known some to dismiss concerns over their choice to remain under bad teaching, claiming all's well. They say these things in some cases even as their marriage crumbles or their kids rebel or their spiritual walk comes to a screeching halt and they never stop to consider whether one of those things might be connected to another. There is a reason we're told to seek for the pure milk of the word, Peter says. It's because the Bible says that is our source for life and for godliness and God has provided it so that we would mature in what it provides. Sitting under great teaching, though, does not guarantee that our marriages will always be healthy, that our kids won't rebel, that our life won't suffer in some way, much like Job's did, as we all remember. But it does assure us that we will have the maturity and the understanding to face it in a godly way, which is what Job did. So it's not a panacea. We're not saying that biblical teaching or good teachers generally assure us of a happy and wealthy life. We're saying, though, that they are necessary if we are to be steeled for what life brings us and so that we may face it with the right witness. But when we go after false substitutes, when we ignore our spiritual development, there will be consequences for us and perhaps for others. As a result, we shouldn't play with fire. We either fight or we flee. That's the command of Scripture. We should not be apathetic in an age in which false teaching is rampant in the church. So let's revisit where we left off last week in verse 8. Jude transitions from the history lesson to describing the deeds of these men. Look what he says. We covered this last week, but I want to take us through it again from a different point of view this week. Look at verse 8. He says, Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. So what are these men doing? Jude now gives us his fifth triad here in this verse. And in this you get a character sketch of who these men were, and to a degree, who they always will be. You could see this as a recipe of sorts for how false teachers work. First, we hear how they come to their false views by dreaming. Dreaming here is very specific. It refers to prophetic dreams, not to the kind you have as you sleep in your bed, but to some spiritual revelation given to them in some supernatural way. That's what he means. So these men use the time-honored practice of claiming wisdom from a heavenly source through special revelation. Notice Jesus said these teachers came in the same way. That means that not only did those in the earlier examples have special dreams or revelation which led them into their sin or gave them license to do so, that's also the mechanism by which these men are claiming their insight, their knowledge, their authority. The starting point for false teachers is always a special revelation which they claim as their authority. This is a classic trick, an insidious trick of Satan. And it's worth a few minutes for us to consider it. The enemy's favorite trick, according to Scripture, is to dress up his lies as if they are a revelation from heaven. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11:14 that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It's no coincidence, then, that many false religions begin with a very similar story. A man visited by an angel of light, delivering new information, new revelation, information that supersedes anything that's been provided before, that corrects for the errors and the mistakes of the past, that 
for once and all sets right what the church should have and what the church should know. The story of many false religions start this way. The beginning of the Mormon religion involves an angel of light delivering new revelation that, according to Joseph Smith, supersedes Orthodox Christianity. The story of the beginning of the Islamic religion involves an angel of light delivering new revelation that supersedes all biblical revelation. There are plenty of others. So how can we know these new revelations are always wrong? Because Scripture itself tells us so. Jude, as you saw earlier in this book, said that the faith was delivered once and handed down. It was delivered by Christ and the apostles. It was handed down. Nothing's been lost. Nothing new is needed. That was the first thing we saw early in the book. Then Hebrews tells us in chapter 1, right up front, 1-1, one, one, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So, according to the book of Hebrews, God saved the best for the last, and the last was his Son. And therefore, there is no new revelation coming. We already have the best that God intends to give us in the sense of revelation. And he did it through the life and the words of his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, no lesser angel is going to come into town after that and provide something new to us better than what Jesus has already given. Finally, the word of God ends with this warning in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Jesus says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them. God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now, it's clear enough Jesus' words are speaking about the book of Revelation. But God is the author of all scripture. He knew Revelation would be the last book in his canon. He knew these words would appear at the very end of the last chapter of the last book in the canon. Therefore, he wasn't merely speaking about Revelation. He was summing up all Scripture. He was saying, in effect, that if anyone tries to add to Scripture, they are showing themselves to be accursed and a disciple of Satan, by definition. So we are to turn our backs on anyone who tries to tell us of their, quote, special revelations. We're not talking about someone who comes and says, I have something to explain to you about Scripture. We're talking about someone who says, I have new Scripture, something that's not in this book, but you need it. Jude says, because of their dreaming, these false teachers were inspired to commit three kinds of sin. First, they defiled the flesh. This is a reference to the licentiousness we have already heard these men were practicing, to their sexual immorality, giving license for sin, just like the angels of Noah's day and the men in Sodom, for that matter. They used teaching and the supposed revelation to cover their sin and make excuse for it. Immorality is always a calling card of the ungodly. I had a pastor who used to say, why are we surprised when sinners sin? That's all they know how to do is sin. That's why we call them sinners. His point was that ungodly men do ungodly things because that is in their nature. Immorality will always be a calling card of the ungodly and particularly of false teachers. Paul makes that connection between false teaching and a lifestyle of depravity, as well in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, you could sum that up as the word of God, verse 4, he is conceited, understands nothing, has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, 
and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. I want you to notice the list of things Paul says go hand in hand with advocating teaching that conflicts with the Bible. They create disputes. They provoke envy and strife. They use abusive language. They encourage evil suspicions. There is constant friction among themselves, and they compete with others to make a gain out of godliness. We don't have to look very hard today to find false teachers who fit that to a T. Watch religious TV. No, actually don't. But if you did, or attend some of the more prominent mega churches of our day around the country, around the world, and you will see showmen and showwomen performing in front of tens of thousands. They'll preach false messages, often on prosperity or something else that provokes the flesh. And in doing so, they'll provoke envy among the faithful. They'll preach messages of inclusion or acceptance on controversial social questions instead of preaching the gospel. Or they'll work to pander to the unbelieving world. I've even seen them, and you may have heard this as well, pastors resorting to foul language from the pulpit because it is attracts the world. Those men are constantly competing for one another for the chance to fleece the biggest audiences, trying to outdo one another so that they can gain what they want from godliness. Secondly, Jude says these men reject legitimate church authority. So they reject authority. In Jude's day, the false teachers we know have arrived with heretical and unorthodox teaching. So naturally, you might expect that they would find themselves at odds with legitimate church authority that was trying to protect the flock from that bad thinking. It only stands to reason that if you show up with bad teaching, someone's going to contend with you. But they reject that authority. And that's what Paul means when he says such men create disputes over various questions or words. In other words, they create a smokescreen by twisting scripture contending with church leaders over the proper interpretation, seeming to show justification for their teaching and diminishing the opinion of the value of the authority of those teachers, of the leaders. And if you've watched, again, any of the current false teaching in the world, you'll see that that's a very common practice, to quote Scripture in a misused way and then, in so doing, seeming to bolster their view, often turning on simple words or phrases, certainly not on a contextual examination of Scripture. Anytime we can discount the word, it gives us room to do what we want. If the church in this case respected and listened to its elders, it's likely it would be protected from the influences of these men, right? That stands to reason. But too often I find pastors and even other leaders in the church are the youngest and most impressionable within the church. And that's not to say young pastors are always a problem, but if you're spiritually immature or at least inexperienced, then you're ill-equipped often to recognize and to contend with false teachers. So you're more impressionable. You're more easily influenced. And that's why we as congregations need to be conscious of who we follow in that respect. We need to follow mature men and women who have a knowledge of the word, who have demonstrated that knowledge in a godly life and can lead us away from such nonsense when it shows up. And then we need a congregation trained to actually listen to them when they tell us we need to stop following someone or stop listening to someone to actually follow their advice, no matter how unpopular it might be. Finally, Jude says these leaders revile angelic majesties. And we looked at this verse briefly last week and we noted that the word that's translated here, angelic majesties, is the Greek word doxa, D-O-X-A, which literally just means glory or heavenly glory. And so the word revile is important to understanding what Jude is saying. To revile means to slander, 
to profane something that is sacred. To blaspheme would be another way to say it. So these men, whoever they are, think nothing of slandering glory, which is another way of saying slandering God or his word or his son or the spirit, the manifestation of God's glory in whatever form. They are shameless and they show no fear of God in that respect. I'm sure if you've watched even a few minutes of some of the worst teachers today, you've probably witnessed them doing all of these things and particularly saying something that may have caused you to gasp. You may have wondered just how could they be so impetuous? How could they have such fearlessness of God in saying something so absurd, something so blasphemous? Well, let me give you an example of everything Jude describes in one false teacher that we have in the world today. I'm not going to name the teacher because, frankly, the name doesn't matter. False teachers come and go. Names change. But it's the pattern we need to learn. Notice Jude doesn't name anyone either. But the pattern is what we need to know. But if you paid attention, you'll probably know who I'm talking about. This false teacher is a prosperity preacher. He's frequently featured on national TV. He flies the world in his private jet. He has a huge following. First, I want you to hear the story he's told himself of how an angel gave him his ministry. He says this, Suddenly, I felt a suction as if I was being pulled up out of my room. I heard a sound, whoosh, and I was pulled up out of the room. I didn't know I had left the room, and I was zooming along at a phenomenal rate of speed in something like a cable car. And then I looked up, and there stood another being, and I realized it was the blonde-headed angel who had visited me. I had an appointment with the Lord God Jehovah. Then I saw other people that didn't have on robes. They were wearing gowns. They started walking toward the city, but they seemed to get weak. And I saw them walk over to the trees, pick what looked like fruit and eat it. And they took some leaves off those trees and put the leaves up to their face and breathed in, smelling them. I asked the angel, what's happening? He said, some of them have not lived the life they should. They believe in God and love Jesus, but they didn't live to their fullest potential. Yes, God is merciful to them, he said, but they have to be prepared to stand in the presence of the Almighty. Some people don't live close to God the way they should. They know Jesus as their Savior, but they could do so much better. In heaven, they will eventually be able to go to God's throne, but it takes more time for them. And it goes on and on and on and on. And he tells this long story about how what happened in the throne room and how he talked face to face with God and so on. And at the end of that story, by the way, he's given a commission to come back to earth and teach and lead people to, to God. Dreaming. And here are three quotes this man has made also publicly in preaching. He says, quote, the first thing on Jesus's agenda was to get rid of poverty. Would you like to know why some people, including ministries, never get out of poverty? It's not because they aren't smart. It's not because they don't have windows of opportunity. It's because they're not anointed. If you're not anointed, poverty will follow you all the days of your life. Jesus's first objective was to get rid of poverty. I seem to remember him saying the poor will always be with you. This is an example of developing jealousy and seeking godliness for purposes of gain. Second quote, naturally, the devil tried to shut down this living, breathing church. He wanted dry bones. He began to take the freshness of God and put ecclesiastical dogma on it. He used theological understanding, doctrine, the study of God's word to water down the fire. So which category does that fall under? Rejecting authority. And the third quote, he says, not long ago, I was in prayer in my own study and I know the Lord, just like, you know, the Lord. And I went in there and started off my day with the Lord and said, Lord, Lord, how are you doing today? It's going to be a great day. And I noticed the Lord wasn't acting right. 
Because I know the Lord. You know when your child's not feeling good, right? You know when something, you, you may not know what it is, but he wasn't acting right, for lack of a better term. I know God, I know him, and I know the fullness of his presence, and I know him. And I said, something's wrong. I said, Lord, you had a bad day? And he said, yes, my children have been disobeying me. And I said, somebody hurt you today. I said, Lord, I don't ever want to hurt you anymore. So, Lord, I'm going to cancel all my appointments and all this stuff that we call ministry. And I'm going to sit here and I don't know how to say this, God, for lack of a better term, but till you feel better. Because so many people heard him that day. Lord, I said, I'm just going to bless you. I'm going to praise you. I'm just going to call your name. And it dawned on me. And the Lord went, thank you. Which category does that fall under? Reviling, reviling majesty, right? Reviling God's majesty. This man has a worldwide following of millions of people who hang on his every word and send him lots of money. He preaches in churches in this city routinely. This is not where he lives, but you will see his name on billboards as he comes and goes and preaches in major churches in this city. The point is not who he is. The point is he's not alone. He's not the first. He won't be the last. And if you know Jude, you see in this man's life the pattern repeated over and over again. You have everything the scriptures have made available so that we would be forewarned to avoid such teachers. Because without that foundation, they are ill-equipped to deal with what they encounter in the world. For even if I was successful in convincing them that this one man is not a good teacher, what for the next guy that comes along? They're not prepared. This is why the word of God is so essential, because the enemy is so crafty. But God's word is stronger than he is. Now you can see all that Jude exhibited in that man. Peter warned the church of such men in an earlier letter. And now Jude has to back up what Peter said with this clear description of their methods so that in the moment that church knew who they were facing. On that final point of reviling God's glory, Jude has one more thing to say. Look at verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Jude uses an example taken from an apocryphal book. We mentioned that we would do some of this as we got into the study. This is the book called The Assumption of Moses. Now, this book is not scripture. The book that this quote is drawn from was not and is not scripture. But that doesn't mean that everything in the book is automatically false either. Therefore, the content of the book rests entirely on the wisdom and the integrity of whoever wrote it. When we say something is scripture, what we mean is that the author was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, every word that's placed in that work is perfect, perfectly placed, entirely accurate, without a single error. It is true in fact, it is accurate in perspective, it is timeless in application, and it is never subject to one man's interpretation. It is also intended by God to serve a certain purpose in his plan of redemption. All scripture supports his plan to bring glory to Christ and lead men to knowing him and serving him. So scripture, by definition, is God inspired, God breathed, God produced for a purpose that ultimately glorifies Christ and us with him. So the difference between scripture and any other writing can be summed up in two senses. It's in the degree of accuracy and in its purpose for existence. So other kinds of writing can have some truth. In fact, there could potentially be a book written by a human being that's 100% true in some sense, but that doesn't make it scripture. 
For example, I can pick up a book written on the history of a war, let's say the Vietnam War, and there might be all kinds of truth written in those pages. There may be facts and figures and dates and times and names, and they're all accurate to some degree. The book is not inspired scripture, so there may also be some false information, even if it's just the perspective that the author brings to the facts. In that sense, we know it's not accurate like scripture is. But that doesn't mean it can't help us. It doesn't mean the book doesn't have some value in it, right? Otherwise, we'd never go to school or read anything but the Bible. So even though it falls short of scripture, it could still serve a good purpose. It can still have some value. Now, in this case, it's self-evident that Jude found something in the assumption of Moses that had value, a fact, a nugget of truth that was in the book that does not by itself make the book scripture, but it means that he could take that fact and incorporate it by the inspiration of the Spirit into this book, and by definition, it is now scripture. That fact, that one piece, is being made scripture. In other words, it's not just true. Now it's true and it has a purpose. Where before it was simply a truth mixed in with who knows whatever else. So, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude included this detail in his letter. So now we can say the Lord has endorsed it. That doesn't mean the entire work was accurate. He didn't endorse the whole book, but he endorsed this. So now let's consider this strange account. Jude reports that the archangel Michael disputed with Satan concerning the body of Moses. This is one of those facts that get people really interested in the book, and and yet in the same way they don't know where to go with it because it seems completely disconnected from anything we've ever heard. Jude doesn't give us the backstory on the moment. He doesn't explain what happened after the dispute arose. He just mentions it in passing. Why? Because his Jewish readers knew what he was talking about. This is Jewish apocryphal literature. It was widely read in the Jewish society. Everyone knew this account, much in the same way that everyone in here knows the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, but none of you can tell me where you heard it first. And you probably don't remember ever reading it, but it's in your head somewhere from somewhere in the past. This is like that. It's one of those fables in Jewish literature. Only in this case, this element of the story is true. Like many fables, they have a, a nugget of truth somewhere buried in and then the whole story goes somewhere after that. Well, that's apparently what happened here. But we have to look elsewhere to understand what Jude's readers already knew. We have to go elsewhere to find out what they already understood. Interestingly, though, there's only one surviving copy in all history of the Assumption of Moses, and that copy is missing over a third of its content, and the part that did survive doesn't include this reference. So you might be asking, well, how do we know it was there in the first place? Well, because other ancient writers and historians of that time remark that this event is recorded in the Assumption of Moses. And in those other books, we also get the backstory. When we consult those ancient records, we learn Moses died in the desert on the east side of the Jordan River, which we know from Deuteronomy. You can read it in Deuteronomy 34. I'll read the first six verses. Deuteronomy 34.1. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all of Naphtali, and in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Jericho the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And the Lord buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. 
So Moses died before the nation entered the promised land. He was barred, as you hear, from entering because in an earlier moment he disobeyed the Lord's instructions. He struck the rock of water more than once, which displeased the Lord. And when you were here with me in the Exodus study, we studied why that was so offensive to the Lord and why it justified that punishment. When Moses died in the wilderness, we're told, no man was given the privilege of knowing where he was buried. The Lord, we're told, buries Moses himself. The purpose in that odd arrangement was in keeping with what we learned back in our Exodus study. Moses represents the law and the promised land represents heaven or represents eternal life. God wanted to make clear that we do not enter the promised land by means of the law. Instead, God asked Joshua to lead his people into the land. And as we learned in the Exodus study, the name Joshua is the name Jesus. We enter by Jesus, not by law. Furthermore, God buried Moses' body himself so that no man would ever think to dig it up or make an idol out of it or put a structure on top of it, lest he become a point of reference for people's worship. Once Joshua was appointed to lead the nation, no one was to follow Moses again, dead or alive. Likewise, once Jesus comes and fulfills the law, no man is to resurrect Moses, so to speak. No man is to go back to the law. Now we learn that when Deuteronomy says God buried Moses, it actually means that this burial was carried out by angels, specifically Michael the archangel. Michael was appointed by God to bury Moses' body. Other ancient Jewish texts actually refer to Michael as the barrier of the dead, probably because he performed this task. But as Michael was burying Moses, now we learn through Jude that the enemy, Satan, demanded the body of Moses from Michael. The assumption of Moses teaches that Satan argued with Michael, saying that the body of Moses belonged to him because Moses was a murderer. Why? Because Moses killed that Egyptian taskmaster. And so for that reason, Satan was claiming that Moses was his follower and he had rights to the body. Now, that was a lie, but he always lies. There's no surprise in that. Satan is a liar. Moses wasn't a murderer. When we studied that in Exodus, we learned that that death was not one of murder, but of self-defense. He was stepping in to defend the life of an innocent in the moment. Furthermore, Moses was saved by faith, according to Hebrews 11. So regardless of what he did then, his sin was forgiven in any case. So why did Satan want the body? Why was he trying to argue and lie and get it? Well, we can imagine a simple reason. The enemy knew Moses was a powerful symbol to the Jewish people, particularly. If he had been able to gain access to Moses' body, perhaps he would attempt to resurrect it by indwelling it, which he could have then used to perpetrate a great fraud on the nation. He could have shown Moses resurrected by the enemy's power, drawing Israel away from God to worship Moses and Satan indirectly, in that way corrupting the people. He's not above doing that because, as we studied in the Revelation class, he is going to do this in the future with a man we call the Antichrist. He wanted to do it then, and he was not allowed to. So the Lord didn't allow it to happen. Michael knew that he could not give the body to Satan so that Satan could do what he wanted with it. He knew that that was not in God's will. He had to contend. He had to dispute with Satan. But he does it, Jude says, with a strong degree of respect for Satan's position, which may seem odd because we would assume that Satan's fall removed him from a position that was worthy of any respect. But Jude says Michael did not dare to rail against Satan. And remember, the word rail is the word slander. Again, same word. Or blaspheme. Or to speak in an abusive way. Even though Satan is the great enemy and a fallen creature, nevertheless, Michael treated him with respect. Why? Well, Michael is an archangel, but Satan is a cherub. He's a cherub, according to Ezekiel 28. 
Cherubs, we learned during the Exodus study, looking at the construction of the tabernacle, a cherub is the highest form of angelic being, a station higher than any angel, including any archangel. So as an archangel, Michael is in a lower station than Satan is in God's angelic majesties, in his order of creation. Now, clearly, Satan has fallen, and from that fall, he will be judged and he will be made to be no more. But in the meantime, Michael defers to Satan's position of honor without daring to revile it, for it is in God's sovereignty that he exists at all. So how does he contend with one that's stronger than him, that has higher positions in angelic realms? Well, instead of handing the body over, he says, the Lord will rebuke you. In other words, he appeals to the Lord. And in the story of the assumption of Moses, Michael turns to the Lord for support in the battle and the Lord turns Satan away. In that sense, you could say Michael tells Satan the Lord rebuke you and that he appealed to the Lord and the Lord took up the battle. But Michael didn't rebuke him himself. Contrast that with the false teachers. They are mere men, not archangels. They revile the majesties of heaven, even the Father and the Son. If Michael knew enough not to challenge an angelic majesty. What does it say about the ignorance of such men? Michael must have had real fear for the consequences of such an action. Wouldn't you agree? He must have understood that he could not for fear of what God would do in response. He knew something about God's wrath. He knew something about God's justice. He knew something about God's judgment that led him to defer. These men apparently lack that. We're going to look at Jude's application to this next time. But for now, I want you to think about how this lesson changes your perspective of those who teach us to rebuke the devil. Have you heard that teaching before? False teachers, and often doing this very dramatically, will teach us that we have the power to rebuke the devil. And that if you're not healed or that if you're not out of some bad situation, it's because you're not casting him out, you're not rebuking him. And if you do these things, he will leave. He will leave you alone. They'll even quote James 4, 7, where we're told to resist the devil and he will flee. The Bible says we are to resist, but it doesn't say we have to rebuke. It doesn't say we have to turn him away in our own power. The idea is that we, by our power, avoid his temptations. We control ourselves. We discipline ourselves. We flee immorality. We resist. But that's not the same thing as reviling, rebuking, slandering Satan. We don't resist by doing these things in our own power. We appeal to the Lord. We ask him to protect us. And the Lord, Scripture says, will do so, leading us out of temptation. We know Satan has real power, but we know the Lord has greater power. So we turn to him while giving proper respect to angelic majesties. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to see uh, clearly in your word who we are to watch for and avoid. And... Uh, how we are to do that. I pray, Father, that each of us have found teaching that will guard us against these things. Leaders in our churches who will have the wisdom and the maturity and the courage to point them out to us. I pray we have the humility and the submitted spirit to listen to these people when we're given warning and when we're directed in these ways so that we will not be wise in our own estimation, but we will listen carefully to what you offer through their counsel. I pray for these men, Father, that they would in some way supernaturally, as you appoint, come to know the truth and cease from their poor teaching and their false words and would, uh, like Paul, become a great minister of the gospel and do more good because of who they were as you appoint. And we ask, Father, that as we continue through the book of Jude, we 
we'll see even more clearly how we may follow you, knowing that these last days are so much the days that Jude spoke of. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.